Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Peter Gray from the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience of Boston College to discuss the article titled Decline and in Independent Activity as a Cause of Decline in Children's Mental Well-Being, Summary of the Evidence. Um, it was recently published in the journal Pediatrics with David Lancey and David Bjorklund. And as always, you can find the full citation of the article in the notes if you want to read it. Um, Dr. Gray, uh, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for sharing your research with the health and physical education world. Uh, I'm very happy to do so, and thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so I think if we can start off by just having you give an overview of the growth and mental health issues in children in the U.S. I, I read the paper, and there's, there's a lot of facts in there about this being a serious issue. So can you kind of share uh, what research has been done on that? Yeah, so probably most listeners have heard uh, from one source or another about the high rates of um, psychological problems of depression, anxiety, even um, tragically suicide among young people today, especially among teens, but even among younger children than that. Um, <clears throat> And often this is discussed as if it's a brand new thing, this increase. But in fact, the increase has been going on now for decades. Um, it's not just within the last 10 or 15 years that we've seen uh, increasing rates from decade to decade um, of uh, psychological problems among young people. It's actually what the data show is that this increase really began all the way back in the a little bit after the middle of the 20th century, around 1960, rates began to increase of anxiety, depression, even suicide. There was an acceleration of that increase in the 1980s, um, leveled off just a little bit uh, at the end of the 20th century and then the, and then began to pick up again the rate of increase um, uh, around 2005 or so and uh, has been continuing to increase since then just to give you an idea of the of the amount of the increase um, there are clinical questionnaires that um, Quite, in a, quite a valid way, assess anxiety uh, and depression in um, school-age children and teenagers uh, that have been given to normative groups of young people, typically administered in schools, uh, over the decades in unchanged form. So we have uh, measures that have been taken uh, over time and when those measures are analyzed to look at what would be the cutoff for what today we would call uh, uh, major depressive disorders, likely major depressive disorder or the cutoff for what today would be called generalized anxiety disorder, the estimates for these disorders at the end of the 20th century were five to eight fold higher Mm -hmm. than they were in the middle of the 20th century. Huge increase yeah. over those that 50, roughly 50-year, 40, 40-year period. Since then, the rates have continued to increase. And uh, my estimate is that it, the rates are now about 10 times what they were 
in the 1960s. So we're not talking about a small change. We're talking about an absolutely huge change. The rate of suicide uh, between um, among school-aged children and teens um, increased by nearly fourfold between uh, the 1950s and the end of the 20th century and have increased since then. According to data collected by the Centers for Disease Control, that rate is now six times what it was uh, in the 1950s. Uh, here's another way of looking at the data, looking at the situation we're in today. I'm going to take data from uh, 2019, and the reason for choosing 2019 is that's before COVID. So mm -hmm. these data are not confounded by COVID. So uh, the Center for Disease Controls every year does a survey of teens um, about their state of uh, mental health. And that 2019 survey showed that um, that 36.7% of high school kids aged 14 to 18 reported persistent feelings of sadness or helplessness over the past year. Nearly 20%, 18.8% to be exact, uh, of of student of children in that students in that range. Uh, seriously considered attempting suicide. Imagine that, think of that, nearly 20%, one out of five, seriously considered suicide. 15.7% actually made a suicide plan. They not only thought about suicide, they actually made a plan for doing it. 8.9% actually attempted suicide once or more. 2.5% made a suicide attempt requiring medical treatment. I mean, this is a national disaster. Yeah. This is something that we that ought to be headlines in every newspaper. This is something that we ought to have national programs to solve this problem. This is a huge, huge problem that we are um, not giving the attention to that we should. Yeah, and the, and the sentence that made me stop while reading the paper was that you said that the second leading cause of death in this age group was suicide only behind an unintentional accident, like a car accident or something like that. That's, exact, that's exactly right. Which more people, more people die of suicide in that age range than of diseases or any other cause other than um, accident. Of course, the main type of accident is automobile accidents. Yeah, yeah, and that and that just gives me chills because it's it's such a you know. I think a taboo subject to talk about, so a lot of people don't talk about it, but you have that high of a percentage of people who have thought about it, who have attempted it, and these are school, these are students in our schools. And I think that that, that kind of content just needs to be shared and addressed head on. Exactly. So what are some of the less researched causes for the increase in mental health issues of, of children? Yeah, so... Um, you know, if you if you were to listen to the so-called uh, experts today or people who um, are passed off as experts, uh, you would think that the biggest cause is technology. You would think the biggest cause is, um, you know, is uh, social media. There's a lot of people trying to argue that social media is a cause. 
The truth of the matter is, and I've looked into the data on this, is the science doesn't really show that very convincingly that social media is even contributing much to it, though it may be to some degree. The, the studies are very mixed. But, you know, of course, social media is new. I mean, the, this increase began long before people were walking around with iPhones, long before we even had the Internet. So if we're going to look for the cause, it can't be just social media, right? Mm -hmm. right. And the, the truth of the matter is that, you know, there's, there, there are a number of studies looking at our, our kids who use social media more likely to be depressed and anxious than those who use it less. And the data are really mixed. And in fact, there have been a couple of review studies that I uh, that I cite in the article published within the last couple of years um, showing no consistent relationship uh, overall. Some studies seem to show a, a, a correlation. Some studies don't show a correlation. Those that show a correlation tend to show it only for girls and young women, interestingly, and not at all for boys. And there's a lot of speculation about why that's true. But it's, I think that one of the reasons our society is focusing so much on social media is we don't want to really admit what might be the real more serious cause because then we have to start pointing the fingers at ourselves. Mm -hmm. Educators have to, teachers, principals have to start pointing the fingers at themselves. Parents have to start pointing the fingers at themselves. Society as a whole has to start pointing fingers at themselves. Youth protection services, you know, the, the kinds of uh, state uh, child protection services we have have to start pointing fingers at themselves. Because the evidence that I describe in this paper is that the real underlying cause is that we have so constricted children's lives, we have deprived them of the activities that make people happy, <laughs> the activities that make people of any age happy. We are, you know, it's not too strong a statement to say that our children today and our culture today are more or less imprisoned. <laughs> They're imprisoned in school for longer hours than they ever have been before. They're still doing schoolwork at home and and in some sense they're kind of in home confinement when they're home because they're not being let out to play and explore and engage in the kinds of activities that children always have in the past you take these things away from anybody of any age <laughs> and you're going to get depression and anxiety i mean it's almost a no-brainer and yet this is not something that's really being talked about. You don't. You see almost no mention of it. There's beginning to be a little bit of a mention in the in the public press, but this is what I'm trying to bring attention to. What we're trying to bring attention to in this article um, by bringing it to the attention of pediatricians, who in turn I hope will help bring it to the attention of society at large. Yeah, and and this is the the lock key generation. This is the, you know, in, in our research studies and after school programs and uh, low income communities, we, we call them the Netflix generation. The Netflix is the babysitter. You go directly home, lock the door, don't let anybody in. Here's a subscription to Netflix and you can stay home until the parents come home. There's no, uh, 
and like you said, you're almost like imprisoned in inside of that home. So I'm wondering if you can share historically how and why did this, the children's independent activities decrease? Like where, where did this start? So, so let me just add to what you just said, that it's not just, it's not literally being locked at home so much. And it's not necessarily poor children. In fact, there is some evidence that it is children from high achieving families uh, who are very um, motivated to um, have their child get as much education as possible, cart their children around from one activity to another. There's actually research by a researcher named Sonoya Luther that shows that it's children in what are called high achievement schools, what she calls high achievement schools, the ones that put the most pressure on kids to get high test scores, the ones where you feel that you failed if you don't get admitted to a fancy college, um, where a B is regarded as failure and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Turns out that the highest rates of mental disorder and even of suicide are in those uh, that social group. Uh, not so much among the poor, although there is high rates among the poor and there are other causes for that. But I just want to make it clear that we're talking about all of all all of society, and we're and we're not talking just about the so-called underprivileged here. Right. We're not talking. Uh, so we have become. And when I, when I say home confinement, what I really mean is it doesn't matter whether the parents are home or not. They're not letting the kids out. <laughs> right. And if they are letting them out, they're putting into them into some kind of an adult-directed activity. And that is not a substitute for play. That's not a substitute for learning what you want to do and doing what you want to do and making your own decisions, learning how to deal with life yourself rather than to be in a situation where you're being controlled and monitored protected in some sense by adults so that's the that's the funda fundamental problem so and then where where did this start like how how do we historically talk about why and how these independent activities started to decrease yeah so i think it's interesting that i think the 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 biggest change began to occur in the 1980s. So, you know, through the through the 19 the, the change began to some degree in the 1970s. But people who grew up in the 70s, uh, their life wasn't that different from people who grew up in the 50s and 60s. Beginning in the 80s, we really began to change. And I think I think there's there are three main reasons for it. One reason is that um, in 1981, there was a very much published case of a young boy, um, who six-year-old boy, who uh, was out playing and was kidnapped and ultimately killed in a very gruesome way. And of course, this made headlines. This was in all the news. And the parents of that boy made a big cause of it. You can't blame them for that. They, they made a big cause of it. And the result even was some legislation that occurred. There was a major campaign. You begin to hear uh, announcements on the radio and television that 
said, uh, do you know where your child is now? Uh, as if you were a negligent parent if you did. Now, notice this is one child. There was actually one other child that also in the 1980s that this occurred for. But out of millions and millions of children outdoors playing, one some a terrible tragedy happened to one of them, and two of them actually. And the uh, the result of that was a major campaign oriented towards parents that basically was saying it is dangerous to allow your children out to play and explore and do things on their own without an adult adult guidance. That's when we began to get that change occurring. Around that same time, uh, you began to see on milk cartons pictures, people who are my age will remember this, people even considerably younger will remember this, seeing milk cartons uh, 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 that had pictures on them of so-called missing children. So you would be eating your breakfast cereal, looking at this sweet little girl or sweet little boy uh, on the milk carton, and you believed that this must be somebody. Why else they would be on the milk carton that was snatched away by strangers? So you begin to think, well, this is a very common thing. And we better be, uh, we better not allow our child out there. It's dangerous out there. Mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is that this has always been an extremely rare crime. I mean, anything can happen and everything does happen if there's millions and millions of people. But statistically, the chance of a stranger on the street snatching a child away has always been very, very low. And it remains very, very low. Um, but people began to think that this is something that happens all the time. It turns out somebody went back and did a study of those milk carton children, and essentially none of them were snatched away in the street. Most of them were runaways. Those who were snatched away were not snatched away by strangers, but generally by relatives. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the ex-spouse who uh, yeah. who believes that the child is theirs, or the grandparent who believes that you're that you're not raising your child properly and so on and so forth so uh, so but at any rate this this essentially a myth developed that it is terribly dangerous for children to be out and 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 you can't blame parents you know if you get a picture in your head oh this could happen we're not really right. trained to we're, we're not really naturally statistical reasoners we don't really generally think about what is the probability that this would happen and it's so small that it's really negligible we don't think that way we think more in terms of stories and pictures and images so once you've got this image this could happen yes it could happen it's also true that your child could be hit by lightning that could happen yes very unlikely, but it could happen. But once you get that image in your head, and then you then you begin to feel like not only could it happen, but it would likely happen, and I just better guard my child all the time. So that was part of it. And over time, the laws even changed so that what was normal parenting in the past became illegal to allow your child to walk to school unaccompanied by an adult or to go and play in the park with friends without some adult watching them. All these things which were always normal. This was normal childhood throughout the history of, of, of human beings for children to be out doing things on their own. Suddenly, it became uh, negligent parenting to allow that to occur. And I think that's a huge part 
of the change that occurred. Now, the other thing, another thing that happened in the 1980s is in 1983, uh, a book was published, um, uh, 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 was, was published uh, that made the thesis that we are a nation at risk because our school system is failing. In fact, the title of the book was A Nation at Risk. It had a huge impact. This was supposedly a government-sponsored study of, uh, of our educational system. Now, up until that time, schools were pretty much run by local school boards. Teachers, principals, teachers within the schools had a lot of uh, control over what happened within the individual school. And of course, these, these are people who are on the ground level, who know kids and who can respond to children's real needs. Um, of course, it depended on who you had as a teacher, but generally speaking, up until about the 1980s, um, teachers could modify what they were doing in the classroom based on who the kids were, what their needs are. They could even give different kinds of assignments to different kids. Uh, they, they And every teacher recognizes that lots of time just sitting in class is not good for kids. Kids are not built for that. Kids need to get up and run around. They need recess. They need a long lunch hour. They need uh, even not just elementary school kids, but even kids in middle school and high school need play, right? And and to a considerable degree, this was happening in school. And But then that nation at risk came out. And then following that, not too long after that, we had uh, federal bills, the No Child Left Behind uh, bill. And, and after that, Race to the Top, all of which gave more government control over what was happening in schools. All of it was oriented towards increasing scores on standardized tests. Mm -hmm. The standardized tests are meaningless in terms of real world information. They are simply, they are, they, but they are, but, but the, the motivation, the concern of nation at risk was most specifically that some of the East Asian schools, or at least uh, parts of East Asia, parts of China, parts of South Korea, uh, uh, Japan, and so on, were scoring higher than our children were on um, those kinds of tests. The PISA tests, the international tests of achievement, began to be given. and we were embarrassed that we weren't doing as well as some of those other countries. So the word came out that we had to start emulating what those countries were doing in schools. Now, the word did not come out that the rates of suicide among children in those places was already skyrocketed, mm -hmm. <laughs> that those children were suffering because, and moreover, that those, that although they were scoring high on standardized tasks, they weren't as inventive as American young people were. They weren't getting Nobel Prizes as a result of this. They weren't be, because the creativity was being driven out of them by that drone-like method of schooling. But then we tried to adopt that. We never adopted it quite as well, but we tried to adopt it. We tried to adopt, and we've been doing that ever since. So we're 
so we we have increased you know between the 1950s and now the school year has increased by five weeks I've, on average i've actually looked that up we've taken away a full month of summer vacation plus another week during the year of vacation from children we've increased the school day from an average of six hours to about average of six and a half hours so in many cases some schools it's more than that we have taken away recess in many places, and in almost every school, cut it down. Um, we've we've taken away lunch hour that used to be actually an hour, <laughs> and now it's sometimes 20 minutes. Uh, we have started giving homework even to young children. Uh, when I was in school in the 1950s and into the 1960s, uh, there was no homework in elementary school. Now even kindergarten children have homework. So all of this began because we believed falsely that we were falling behind other nations because we weren't scoring so high on standardized tests. I mean, it's crazy reason to change the way we were doing schooling, but that's what we did. Yeah. And, that, and this is continuing and continuing even at, at, at a higher rate as we're now even Give, I know of preschool kids who are bringing home homework. I heard from a father uh, not too long ago who said that he got a message. His four-year-old brought home in New York City a message after two or three weeks of school that he was academically behind and needed to be drilled in school. I mean, this is we've gone insane with this, absolutely yeah. insane. And so when you put all this together, is it any surprise that our children began to suffer more beginning in the 1980s and as we have continued this trend that they have continued to suffer more yeah the the whole milk carton thing is so fascinating because i so i grew up in finland and i've talked to my students who have kids and most of the time these parents at some point figure out that finnish parents leave their infants in the stroller to sleep outside their house unattended and that's yeah. just completely normal and they are so surprised and they bring me this you know social media post or something where they learned about it and they ask like you don't actually do this i'm like well what's what's wrong with it who's gonna go kidnap my baby and they're just so right. surprised and this idea i'm like the reason why you think this, because I didn't grow up looking at those milk cartons, but I would, I would be traumatized. I would not let my children yeah. do anything. But yeah. I, I grew up where, like, I, you cite this in your paper about Finland having the um, most autonomy for younger kids. So, like, you can walk to school by yourself at seven and um, right. bike to school at this time, cross roads at this time, like. That's how I grew up. Like my my you know, elementary school was a few miles away from where I lived in first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. I rode my bike. Uh, we pushed a kick sled in the in the winter. I went with a couple friends and that's just how you got there. And I remember my dad dropped me off one time to school. It was such a huge moment like that. He drove me. It was people are like, why'd your dad drive you? today like are you late or like what's going on and right <laughs> it was such a I mean, different world and i can see like you talk about in an article if you were if you grew up before the 1970s or in the 70s you might remember this more free roaming lifestyle for kids and that's what i remember and it's definitely exactly. not what we allow here 
Exactly. It's it's interesting that Finland is uh, is an exception. Most of Europe has followed the same course as the United States, not quite so extreme, but um, it, the UK just as extreme. They're just as bad. Um, mm-hmm. Germany somewhat less so, but Finland is uh, somehow um, uh, retained. Um, an understanding that children need and benefit from independent activities that it's really safe enough, you know, that, uh, yeah. uh, so it's a very, it's very interesting that you grew up in yeah. Finland. And, and, yeah. and another interesting, uh, Nordic system in Norway, the after school programs, uh, in education code push for autonomous student activities. They push right. for unstructured physical activity opportunities, in those after-school programs, which I think in the U.S., every after-school program that I've ever been to is structured, tons of supervision, not a lot of independent play, play right. for sure, but something that their um, that their adults are pushing. So, I I guess in that transition, I'm wondering because you just find this in the paper. Can you explain what children and adults like? How how do they define play? Yeah. So let me let me start off by so, talking about what play is. So so I've been I'm a play researcher, and most people who are play researchers who study play, who think of play as a phenomenon to be studied, um, have a definition of play similar to mine. And so here's my definition of play, very briefly. Play is an activity that is initiated and controlled by the players. So if it's initiated and controlled by some authority figure who is not one of the players, it's not play. (laughs) It may be exercise. It may not be a bad thing, but it's not play by my definition and by the definition of many other people who study play. The, one of the primary purposes of play, and in fact it can be argued that the primary reason why children want to play, the primary evolutionary reason why there's such a strong drive to play, is because play is how children learn to take charge of their own activities. It's how they learn to initiate activities, how they learn to solve their own problems, how they learn to negotiate with their playmates, about what to play, about how to play, is how they learn how to create rules and enforce rules themselves. These are really extremely important lessons to learn, and they're learned when children are playing. When adults are involved, adults undermine all of that. Adults solve the problems. Adults Mm -hmm. create the activity. So children no longer are in charge, and they're no longer learning how to be in charge. They're no longer learning how to solve their own problems. They're not developing a sense even that I can initiate activities. I can solve my own problems. So activities like Little League Baseball and adult-directed sports of all sorts, we call them play. play. You know, play is a word like a lot of English words that has a number of different meanings. But that meaning of play is not the meaning of play that I'm talking about. It also turns out that there are studies, and I refer to them in the article that we're discussing here, 
in which researchers have actually tried to understand what uh, young children, typically five and six-year-olds, uh, regard as play or not play. And what they've come up with is, for example, I'll give you an example of one way of doing the study. You show the children pictures of children doing things that look fun. It looks like the children are having fun. And in some cases, there is an adult in the picture. And in other cases, there's no adult in the picture. And basically, uh, the determining factor, it turns out, in these studies is whether there's an adult in the picture. If there's an adult in the picture, the children say, no, that's not play. Apparently, because they assume that if there's an adult in the picture, the adult is taking charge, mm -hmm. and then it's not play. Play is something that kids do, in kids' view. It's something, of course, adults can play, too. But, but when adults are playing, it's, a, it's you're not playing. If, if adults are playing, uh, you know, adult professional baseball players who have a coach who's telling them what to do and so on and so forth, uh, again, we call it play, but it's not real play because it's not being, it's not an activity in which the players themselves are largely deciding what to do and how to do it and how to structure and what the rules are and so on and so forth. So, um, so I think we need to be clear here that I think that there's a tendency for people to believe in our culture today that it is okay that we're not letting children go out and play because we're putting them in sports. We're putting them in adult-directed sports, and that way they're getting their physical activity, and they are playing with quotation marks around it but what is not being recognized is that even if they are getting some physical activity that way none of the other benefits of play are occurring or at least not occurring to anything like uh, the degree that they are occurring when you're creating your own game let me give let me let me give an example by comparing baseball the way we used to play baseball when I was a kid uh, and a little league game that a child might be involved in today. So when I was a kid, we played a lot of baseball and the way you played baseball was you went out to the vacant lot down the street and there'd be a bunch of other kids, some of them big kids, some of them little kids, some good ball players, some of them bad players. You'd be in this vacant lot. It's not a manicured ball field. There's no, the bases are not set up. It's not regulation size, even for a little league. It's just a vacant lot. Uh, there's a street going by one corner with traffic on it. There's a, there's a building with windows uh, off the one, another side. Um, you've got a kind of a ragtag group of kids and you create a game. There's no adult there. You create a game. You figure out typically the two best players are make themselves captains and they choose up the teams and you try to make the teams balance. You've never got 18 kids, so you have to figure out how you're going to field the thing. A lot of problems to solve here. You've got to create ground rules. Anybody who hits it into that busy street, automatic out. Anybody who hits it towards those windows, automatic out. If you're 
if you're really big and strong, you've got a bat and you're right-handed, you got a bat left-handed, or maybe you have to bat with a broomstick. You know, you, you pitch softly to the little kids. Of course you do. Well, even your own teammates would mock you if you pitched hard to the little kids. You've got to, the, the primary challenge here is to keep everybody happy, to, to create this game so that's fun. Everybody's challenging their own abilities. Everybody wants to do well. You cheer wildly when your team makes a score because that's exciting, but in the end, nobody cares who won or lost. So that's the little league game. Now think that's the that's the pickup game of baseball. That's the way kids always used to play baseball, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's also how they played touch football. It's how they played uh, street hockey. It's how they played ice hockey in the north in the on the ponds that I grew up in in northern Minnesota. So this was normal play. Now compare that to the little league game. You go out to the field. It's a manicured field. It's all laid out for you. There's nothing you have to do as a kid, nothing. <laughs> it's all set there. There's a coach who tells you who's playing what position. There's an umpire who decides what's balls and strikes and what's fair and foul. God forbid your parents are there watching you. Good grief. <laughs> you have no freedom here. <laughs> you, are, you are under a very controlled situation. You're, this is nothing like the pickup game. This, you are not learning any of the skills. Little League, I'm not against it, but it should only come after you've played a lot of pickup baseball and you really want to do it. Yeah. You really want to do it. And if you, it's a good place to learn baseball, but how many people are going to go on in life where their baseball skills are crucial to their uh, success as adults. A tiny fraction of yeah. 1%. How many people are going to go on in life where your skills in compromising and figuring, solving problems, in paying attention to whether your playmates, your friends, your colleagues are having fun or not, in, in uh, creating rules and following rules, all the things that you have to do for that pickup game, those are the skills that lead to success in life. And those are the skills that we are denying our children because we have taken away their play and we think that adult involvement is as good. Yeah, and, and you highlighted this kind of phenomenon too through that Swiss study that they had two different neighborhoods and one neighborhood was um, you know, more, more freedom for the kids because the traffic patterns hasn't been, hadn't been as set so that all these like five and six year olds like played together versus uh, another Swiss neighborhood that had high traffic and then uh, the parents started restricting their kids movement and like when they would go out they would go to the park and it was an orchestrated structured thing it wasn't like you going to the baseball field and you had until the street lights went on until you had to go in it was like parents taking kids to the park now is, you know, you're there and you're like, okay, well, we got to go home in 45 minutes because I have to make food for you and you have to be present with me versus having the kids play in the neighborhood and making dinner. And that, that was my rule. Like when the street lights went on, I was like, oh, lights went on. I got to go. And then you, everybody just went home at that point. 
this is very common in the United States too, and until about the 1980s. So, yeah, that that study that you're referring to, done in Zurich, uh, Switzerland, um, is a great study because it was done at a time when there were still some neighborhoods uh, in Zurich where children were still out playing, uh, young children, um, and in the neighborhood with no adult involvement and this old-fashioned way of playing in the neighborhood. And there are other neighborhoods because of, as you say, traffic, um, where parents were not letting their kids, reasonably their parents were not letting their young children out to play because of the dangers of traffic. So it was a great opportunity for study. similar social class uh, and just living in different neighborhoods resulting in different um, opportunities to play. The parents in the neighborhoods where they weren't allowing the children out to play believed that by taking the children to the park, they could remedy that this was uh, remedying the problem. So they would take them to the park much more often than parents in the other neighborhood where the children were playing outdoors in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. were. And but what they found, what the researchers found, is that there was that the first of all the play in the park was not the same high quality play that was occurring in the neighborhood. Partly because you when you go to the park and you your friends aren't there, you know. <laughs> so play with your friends, with your regular friends is quite different. You know them. You you've worked out how to play. You get right involved in play. You go to the park and there's a bunch of strangers there. You don't even know. So you're largely playing by yourself. It's not social play. You're not learning a lot of those social skills. Secondly, there's much less to play with in the park. You know, you go to the park and there's playground equipment. You can do that. But when you're playing in the neighborhood, kids are taking stuff out. They're bringing boards, hammers. They're bringing out their go-karts. They're bringing out their bicycles and scooters. They're bringing out all kinds of things to play with. And they're, and, and there's a lot, much wider variety of ways to play as well as more kids to play with. And then finally, you have a lot more, as you mentioned, you have a lot more time to play because it's un, it's unlimited. In fact, your parents probably want you to be out there instead of bothering them in the house. So the kids are outdoors for a long period of time playing. Parents may take the, part, the child to the park, but they, they don't have the patience or the time to be there for a long time. So the total amount of being outdoors and playing was much less for those who were being taken by parents to the park. Uh, one of the things they found was that those children in the neighborhoods uh, that um, were still playing outdoors had at least twice as many friends and they had higher social and emotional skills than those who were being taken to the park by their parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one, one of the kind of side notes in in your paper was about young people who have part-time jobs and their that effect to their happiness so can you kind of briefly talk about why would having a part-time job lead some students like high school students uh, to a higher level of happiness yeah so first of all it's not just play the uh, and independent mobility that has been largely taken away from young people but also to a considerable degree the opportunity for having a part-time job has been taken away 
Um, just, uh, you know, I, I probably shouldn't talk too much about myself, but by the time I was, well, by the time I was eight or nine, I was mowing neighbors' lawns and shoveling sidewalks and picking up 25 cents maybe for each time I did it, right? By the time I was 10, I had a paper route. Uh, when I was 13, uh, we were living in Duluth, Minnesota, and I worked uh, after school um, as an errand boy and janitor uh, for uh, a bookbinding company. I would make deliveries by foot um, in the city of Duluth at 13 years old. I was in seventh grade, and after school I had this job. I actually, because that was also the, about the same time that Social Security began. I, when I look at my Social Security statement, I began contributing to Social Security at age 13. Wow. So what does that do for a, a young person? It gives you a sense that, you know, I can do adult things. I can actually work. I can earn my own money. I, and that is my money. That's not my parents' money. That's my money. I earned that money. I can do whatever I want with that money. Mm -hmm. That is freedom. That is freedom. And that is real world activity. That is so much more satisfying. I was also a pretty good student, but I got a lot more satisfaction out of that than out of any A I got in class because that was real world. That showed I could handle the real world, not just this artificial world that we call school. So. I'm talking there about myself, and I probably was a little earlier with some of those kinds of activities. I was a big kid. I was tall, and I looked older. I could pass for older than I actually was. So I had, but it wasn't that unusual. Many kids had paper routes. Many kids, kids babysat. I babysat by the age of 11 or 12 for other family. Now, people feel like they need to hire a babysitter for their 11 or 12 year old child, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, this is a, what a change in the world. So uh, similar, even my son, now my son grew up in, the, in the, largely in the 19th, he was a kid in the 1970s, he was born in the late 1960s, kid in the 1970s, I had a child quite young. And um, so he actually had a job working at a restaurant when he was 12 years old, traditionally washing dishes, but then they put him on, they saw he was a very responsible kid, and they put him on the line as a, as a line cook. Uh, at 12, I guess maybe he was 13 by the, no, he was actually 12 when he had that job. So as recently as the 1970s, um, kids were working those kinds of jobs. That job is illegal now. <laughs> you yeah. couldn't, you, they wouldn't be allowed to hire anybody under 18, I don't think, certainly not under 16. So, so, so kids really get some satisfaction. You're also, you're meeting people, a different variety of people. You're meeting people who are who are uh, not the same age as you, you're, this is uh, satisfying, you're getting a, a sense of what the real world is like. So the fact that we are not allowing children to have these kinds of jobs, and part, part, of, the reason, part of the reason is some of these jobs are now illegal, they're regarded as dangerous, just like so much else is being regarded as dangerous, it isn't really dangerous. And um, that's part of it. But the other part of it is we have come to see school as children's job. Mm -hmm. And they should be spending their time doing homework rather than have some kind of a, 
out-of-school yeah. real yeah. job. And that, in my mind, is misguided. We're, we're burning them out with homework. Absolutely. Where they're not learn, where they're not learn by having them spend more hours in school and more hours in homework. They're not learning more. They're just being burned out more. Mm -hmm. They're they're studying to pass the test and then they're forgetting it. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is just wasted effort and it's very harmful to the children that we're doing this. Yeah, and. And as a side note, I, I asked this local kid, 17-year-old high schooler who is mowing lawns, because uh, we're going to Finland this summer, I need my lawn mowed. Inflation has hit this industry since you were getting 25 cents. He, he said $30 every time I mow a lawn, and I'm like, my lawn is not even that big. Yeah. But, um, one of the terms you use is locus of control. Um, can you explain what that means and kind of share with us what that means for mental well-being? Yes, yeah, so there's this concept uh, that psychologists developed of locus of control, which is uh, basically, do you feel that you are in control of your own behavior, that you uh, are the master of your life, that you can decide what you want to do and you can do it, that you can solve problems, that uh, you are in charge of your own fate. That is called an internal locus of control versus at the other extreme, the belief that I'm really a victim of circumstance, of powerful other people, uh, of institutions uh, that are outside of me. And I am being controlled uh, by all of these other forces and there's little I can do uh, about any of this. This is kind of the victim mentality. And so, um, of course, the reality is we're all somewhere in the middle of this. You know, there are certain things that we all can control and believe we can control. And there's other things that the truth of the matter is we honestly can't control. But there's variance. Some people lean toward further towards the direction, yeah, I can control a lot. And I can really make decisions about my own life. And I can follow through on those decisions versus the other extreme of, you know, in this, I, I am, I'm just a, a victim of uh, society, a victim of my parents, a victim of the school system, a victim of this or that, and uh, there's little I can do about it. So there's actually a psychological question, a questionnaire that assesses this, and it turns out to be relatively valid, that assesses the degree. There's questions that get at the issue of whether you feel controlled by others or you feel in control. And it, and it turns out that, this has long been known, that regardless of how old or young you are, you are better off psychologically if you believe you have a strong control over your own life. This is if you, those people who score high on this questionnaire in internal locus of control, regardless of age, are far less likely to suffer from anxiety or depression at any point in their life than people who are, uh, uh, have an external locus of control, low internal locus of control. So, well, yes, go ahead. So can I ask you this, and this, is, this wasn't covered in your paper, but I'm wondering, is there a, a link to people who are very religious having a more external locus of control? 
Because I would assume, like, if you believe that God has a predestined uh, path for you, you would be less inclined to be a person that has a high internal locus of control, which is like, I'm the master of my life, I make decisions, I'm in control of a lot of things. Have there, do you know of any research that's been done on like religious beliefs? It's, it's, it's an interesting question, and uh, I don't know of any such research. My guess is there hasn't been any, but it's a, it's a very interesting question. Hmm. I, I could imagine different responses to that. I mean, I think that, um, yeah, depending, I, I think that, that to a large, my, my guess is that um, my guess is that there's little, if any, relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think that that kind of a religious belief is, although it's a belief, I don't think it's a belief that affects your day-to-day -day mm. behavior. <laughs> yeah. uh, Maybe more that you interpret yeah. it that way after yeah. something happens, you yeah. interpret like, right. so you have... Right. But what we do know is that children who have overprotective parents, not surprisingly, have uh, don't have a strong internal locus of control. Why? Because they're being controlled. They right. haven't had much of an opportunity to control. Mm -hmm. So now, over this same period of time that I've talked about, the same decades where we have seen uh, such an increase in anxiety and depression and suicide in young people, we have also seen a dramatic decline in internal locus of control. This, this questionnaire, there's a, there's a version of this kind of a questionnaire for um, high school kids, and um, the finding is a dramatic decline between the middle of the 20th century and the end of the 20th century. I don't, don't actually know of any research using it in the 21st century. Uh, but between uh, about 1950 and uh, the year 2000 or so, there was a tremendous decline in internal locus of control among young people. Now, to me, there's, there's no surprise here, and I think this shows a kind of chain of events. So if you take away from children the opportunity to have control, because you're taking away play, you're taking away... Uh, the kinds of freedom that comes with jobs, where you're, you, you're, you're in control of the job, nobody's telling you uh, moment to moment what to do, you've got to do it. You're taking away this, uh, these opportunities to learn that you really can take control, you can really do things in the real world. No surprise, <laughs> the result of that is you, you, you develop an external locus of control. I'm a victim mm -hmm. of uh, what other people, other powerful other people, and the truth of the matter is you are. Yeah. So, so, but what the research shows, if long, you know, regardless of age, if you don't feel you have control, then you kind of believe something terrible could happen any time, and there's nothing I could do about it. That's yeah. a very anxiety-provoking situation. Absolutely. And so you're subject to anxiety. You're subject, you're also, you know, another term for depression is helplessness, hopelessness. Depression is a symptom of hopelessness mm -hmm. and helplessness. The idea that you don't have control means I'm helpless, <laughs> and that can lead to depression. So, uh, again, uh, no surprise. it should be no surprise at all that when we take opportunities for children to t control their own lives, the result is increased anxiety and depression and even tragically suicide. Yeah. 
So as we kind of bring this back to the school environment, unfortunately, it's clear that schooling experiences are sometimes a major cause for psychological distress for youth who are going to school. So I'm wondering, what are the aspects of schools that lead to this distress? Other, I mean, we talked about some, like homework and the pressure to get high scores. Uh, but what can we as educators do to change? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. And first, let me give a little bit of data that shows that school indeed is a big cause of it. So we've talked about the high rate of suicide. Uh, what most people are not aware of is the rate of suicide among school-age children plummets in the summer. It goes way down. <laughs> it plummeted during the first months of COVID, <laughs> decreased, less suicide when children weren't in school uh, than there was before. Uh, there was also, there was a study done in um, 2014 by the American Psychological Association of called Stress in America. They actually do this study every year, but usually they don't include teenagers. They, it's usually just a study of adults uh, beyond age 18. Uh, but, this, but that year they included teenagers. And it's basically a survey in which they ask uh, each person surveyed about the level of stress and anxiety they've been experiencing. And what they found was that teenagers were more stressed out than any other age group uh, in the country, more stressed out than adults. And when they asked the teenagers, and this is key, what is the main source of your stress? 83% said school. Think of that. 83% said school. They didn't say it's social media. They didn't say it's the things we're talking about. They said it's school. Moreover, they did the survey both during the school year and during the summer. When they did it in the summer, when kids were not in school, the rates of stress were cut in half. The few, few, half as many kids said that they had experienced. If I remember right, something like 20 eight percent during the school year said they had experienced severe stress within the past week that was cut down to about 14 percent when they asked the question in the summer so there's no question but what school is stressful and i've already presented the evidence from sonoya luther's work that if you're going to a very high pressure school the kind of school that many parents want to get their kids into <laughs> Uh, the kind of school that brags about high, how high the standardized test scores are and how many kids get into Ivy League colleges and the like, that, um, that the rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide are even higher there than in other schools. So there's no question but school is, is, a, is a major cause of, it, of the problem. Uh, in addition, I mean, it's not just part of it is that school is taking away from the freedom to find your own activities and engage in independent activities, but it's more than that. It's, it's a stressor in itself. We have created a world in which children are worried about doing well in school. They believe if they don't get high grades, they'll be life failures. They've been convinced of that. And this is especially true from ch uh, children from high achieving families who feel like they're letting down their parents if they're not achieving high themselves so that's the reality so what can be done in schools now it turns out i actually am one of the founders of an organization nonprofit organization called let grow mm -hmm. 
And uh, Lenore Skenazy, who wrote a wonderful book called Free Range Kids, is the uh, another founder of it and is the president of it. It's primarily her organization, I must say, but I work very closely with her. And we have, among other things, been working with schools, uh, schools that uh, have uh, been drawn to us. Um, and here's a couple of the things we've been doing in schools. They're probably now... I don't know exactly how many. We don't even know at the organization because many schools have picked up these without even letting us know. But the schools that we've directly worked with, uh, we've seen the effects directly. We're now actually doing some systematic studies to look at these effects. But one of the things we're doing in school is what the schools call play club. So play club is uh, if you sign up for play club and in most of the schools, most of the kids want to be in it, uh, that's an hour a week, one, one hour per week at school of free play where all the kids, this is typically in elementary schools, although there are a few middle schools doing it, um, where all the kids, all grades combined are playing together. So you got maybe 100, 150 kids all playing together. You open up the, not only the outdoor playground and the gymnasium, but the way this is done in many schools, also many of the other parts of the school. The hallways are open for play. The art room is open for play. Other rooms have games in them and so forth. You might have 150 kids or more all playing together at the same time. The teachers who monitor play club are instructed that while play club is going on, they are not teachers. They're like lifeguards on an ocean beach. They're not there to tell people what to do. They're not there to um, solve little problems. They're not there to be tattled to. They're just there to save a life. <laughs> yeah, that's putting it a little extreme but they're really there just for emergencies they're not there to worry about a skin knee to break up arguments the purpose of play is for children to learn how to solve their own problems and create their own activities so the first schools that did this there was some concern that some of the teachers were concerned all oh, the children will just fight and what are we going to do about that and parents were concerned some of the parents believed the older children would bully the younger children because I had already been studying children in this kind of a play environment, age-mixed play environment with no intervention by adults, I was not worried about those things. I was more worried that the teachers wouldn't be able to refrain from intervening. But it has turned out to be enormously successful. Even those people, those parents and teachers who were in first concern, um, soon were raving about about what was happening there. They were seeing kids that they believed were bullies were really being helpful to the younger kids. The kids were remarkably good at solving their own problems when allowed to do so when the parent when the adults didn't intervene. They were playing that older kids were helping the younger kids in some way, and the younger kids in many ways were inspiring the older kids to play in energetic and creative ways. So it's not enough play, but one hour a week is something. I kind of liken it to a cup of water if you've been in a desert, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. Boy, is this delicious, yeah. right? So, yeah. And it's giving them a taste of play. And what we're trying to find out, we're now doing some major research. We just started it in the state of New Hampshire. The Commissioner of Education in New Hampshire is very interested in this. And 
he's given a the state has given a major grant to Boston College to uh, do systematic research on the effects of this. And so we're looking, we're beginning, uh, the research hasn't really started, we're just signing up schools for it to really begin the research at the beginning of the next academic year, but we'll be looking at a lot of things. One of them is, does this stimulate kids to make friends and to play outside of school more than they did before? Does this give, does this change the culture in the school so that the teachers develop a different attitude about the kids and the classes become more playful? Does it lead to the idea, well, this is working so well, maybe we should increase recess and maybe change the rules about recess, make recess less stringently controlled and a more real play occurring at recess. Uh, maybe we should have age-mixed recesses because the age-mixing seems to really add to the value of this. So we're going to be looking at all of, all of these kinds of potential effects on the school. The other, the other intervention that comes from Let Grow is actually a, a much simpler one that any teacher can do. It is um, it's called the Let Grow Project, and this is really Lenore Scanese's invention. Play Club was kind of my invention because it followed very directly on previous research I had done about the value of age mixed play. But, um, but this is something that Lenore had piloted in various ways. And the way it works in schools is that the teacher gives an assignment to the children to do something outside of school that they'd never done before. Ideally, this is a once a week assignment. Every week, the child has an assignment. Do something new out of school that you've never done before. And ideally, it's something that you're a little bit afraid of, something that is new, something that uh, that uh, you have maybe a bit of anxiety about, but you would like to do it. And it might be something that you haven't done because your, p your parents uh, don't want you to do it or think it's dangerous. But you have to negotiate with your parents. You can't do something... To as this assignment that your parents don't approve of. Your parents have to approve of it. <laughs> and so uh, you have to negotiate. You can't, so the typical, uh, here's just to take an example. I often give this kind of example. That you've got maybe a 10-year-old girl who's been, uh, who thinks, I would really like the adventure of riding my bicycle to my friend's house all by myself. Uh, my friend who lives two or three blocks away I want to, I've never been allowed to ride my bicycle. I always, my parents drive me there or they walk me there. I want to go myself. I want to go by bicycle. So the child pre presents that to her mom. Usually it's the mom who <laughs> controls these things um, and says, uh, you know, I've got this assignment in school. Well, right away, the parent has to take it seriously. This is a school assignment, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of the genius of this. Of this. And so the parent can't just dismiss it. So the, child, so the child describes what she would like to do, and the mother says, oh, yeah, I understand why you want to do that, but oh, that's really too dangerous. I can't let you do that. So then the child says, well, how about, if um, I just ride my bicycle down to the end of the block and back, and the first time I do it, you can sit on the stoop and watch me. So that's, this is kind of a, a, something at least in the direction of what the child wants to do. So the mom agrees to that, and that occurs. And then what Lenore finds with this, and what the teacher is doing this have found, is that 
it's not just the child who's proud that she did this. It's the mother, too, is proud that the child did it mm -hmm. and proud that she allowed the child to do it. And so that now primes the parent to think not just about safety, but to also think about the value of adventure. And so maybe next week, that, that same parent is now ready to allow the child to go a little farther on the bike, maybe all the way around the block on the bike. And maybe by the third week, the child can do what she initially wanted to do, which was to ride her bicycle to the. So that's just one kind of scenario. But some of the children, interestingly, want to cook a meal by themselves. Who wouldn't want their children to cook meals yeah. for them, right? I mean, yet there are lots of kids who would like to cook, but they're not being allowed to because the parents think it would be dangerous to mm -hmm. them. The stove is dangerous, the knives are sharp and dangerous, and so on and so forth. So this is uh, this is an easy assignment to give, and, and it kind of breaks this cycle of fear because it creates a new cycle of pride in independent achievement, both for the child, but even more important for the parents and seeing how happy the child is to have done this, how proud the child is to have done this thing that the child had never done before. And the uh, and then the parent feels proud about this too, and then the parent is more inclined to allow more independent activities for the child going forth. Yeah. So let me let me transition you into a little bit of physical education. Um, I mean, the subject of PE, you know, if done correctly, right. if done well, obviously teaches about movement. But I know a lot of good physical educators, especially at the elementary level, that talk a lot about play and they structure their classes to incorporate play. Um, and a good teacher understands that there needs to be autonomy and choice in that curriculum. And that, that looks different at different levels and different at different levels of the teacher's experience. But there is a lot more research about student voice, student choice and autonomy in PE. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this idea of the role of physical education in pushing play forward based on what you wrote about in this article. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I haven't been involved with physical education in schools for a long time, so I don't know for sure what is happening. I do know that historically physical education in middle school and high school, I don't even remember there being such a thing as physical education classes in elementary school. We had long recesses, we had long opportunities for play, but I don't remember anything called physical education. But, um, but physical education in middle school and high school, and there's actually even been research on that in the past, has in my mind been disastrous. It's as if you take this wonderful thing you call that we might call play and you destroy it. And you destroy it by making kids do things that they don't that they're not ready to do, that mm -hmm. at least many of them are not ready to do. I remember, for example, uh, seventh grade gym class, <laughs> you know, I guess that's and so you had to climb the rope to the top of the ceiling in front of everybody else <laughs> you know if you're a good rope climber fine but mm -hmm. for other kids this is the absolutely worst situation to be practicing climbing a rope in front of other people who are going to laugh at you the embarrassment of doing it being judged about it by a, you know it's one of the ways i look at it is schools are very good at destroying the fun of everything 
Yeah. Why is it that most people in our culture hate math? <laughs> they hate it because it was pushed down their throats <laughs> in ways that were unpleasant, in ways that they didn't have control over, that didn't make any sense to them, and that often embarrassed them if they didn't do it well. Um, I know people, some of my research is with homeschoolers and people who have left school for a variety of reasons. I know quite a number of kids who left school because of phys ed. (laughs) They were being embarrassed, especially girls who were being embarrassed in phys ed. And they, and they did, they, you know, they would try to get out of it in one way or another. And so I think that it is really, really important that, um, I would like to do away with the term physical education. <laughs> Just call it play, you know. Give people the opportunity. Give people the opportunities to, to create games. Get, give people the opportunity to climb ropes if they want to climb ropes or to, to race one another around tracks if they want to do that. But don't force people to do it. Don't say everybody has to do this. You're not doing anybody a favor. You're not even creating physical fitness by doing that. What physical fitness is created when people want to do something that's physically strenuous. And and so you have to give them the opportunity to discover the kinds of physically strenuous things that they like to do and that they then get an opportunity to practice this and be, become good at it. So otherwise, what's happening is that just as, just as what happens in the rest of school, there's some kids who are already good at it. They kind of enjoy it. They're sort of showing off, and they may get something out of it. And there are other kids who are bad at it. And those kids suffer because they feel bad at it. That <laughs> lowers their esteem about this. They feel like this is not for me. This is for somebody else. And so I think it's really, really important that um, as, that for something like for anything going on in school, I believe, but especially physical education, uh, especially play, it should be really um, about freedom and not about coercion. Yeah. And I, and I think that there's so much research coming out now about meaningful physical education and the and incorporation of play and autonomy and choice. I do agree with you that the highly super structured we run the mile every Wednesday and this is what you have to do. You're not really working with any of the theories of uh, why people do things and why people continue to do things to have that lifelong physical activity embedded. And I think we can take a lot from research on play and research about autonomy that makes this uh, better. Um, but I, I guess my last my last question here is that you've talked about this decrease in chi- children's independent activity kind of as a result of good intentions. And, you know, we don't want to stick our fingers out and blame the parents and educators because they did it out of like a good place in their heart. They want to protect children. They they grew up you know, brainwashed or whatever, like watching the milk cartons and hearing these tragic stories of things that have happened to kids and they kind of kept them close. And I'm wondering, as we kind of wrap this up, um, you mentioned how caregivers can help out this mental health crisis and that 
one of the main ways is to work with parents. So um, what advice would you have for educators and school stakeholders to change or improve the experiences of children in schools? So I think that's right. So the um, I think that the first thing that um, if if we're talking about parents, so I often am invited to speak to um, to faculty at schools, usually high schools, and sometimes to parents and of the sometimes to to larger groups that include parents of the children at the school. And my advice really always is instead of constantly doing more, start doing less. Start taking away from all these classes, fewer classes, less homework. Mm -hmm. Recognize that children need free time, that we're usurping their free time. Let's start doing less in school. Uh, Let's start having fewer tasks, fewer homework assignments, fewer standardized tasks let's let's return more autonomy to teachers who in turn can give more autonomy to children Uh, those are the kinds of changes that i would like to see in some sense this is a step backwards this is a step more towards the way schools used to be they weren't such terrible places because teachers for the most part are loving people they love kids and they and they they see firsthand i'm i know Tragically, many teachers, especially teachers who have been in the system for a long time, are quitting and have quit over the last two or three decades because of the changes and what they're being required to do. Mm-hmm. We've got to we've got to sort of back off on all of this and make more fun. The other thing I would suggest: there's actually research showing that the the if you want to if you want to improve. So a lot of the changes in school, some of the changes in school, and this is certainly good intention, has been aimed at trying to reduce the so-called education gap, the gap between the rich and the poor and how they do in school. Economically wealthier kids tend to do much better in school grade-wise than kids from economically impoverished families. Uh, on average. And that gap has always been present. And over recent times, it has increased. And in in fact, part of the whole point of No Child Left Behind and part of the point of all this testing and more and more homework was that this was supposed to reduce the gap Mm -hmm. (laughs) by being sure that everybody is doing a lot of work. This is supposed to reduce the gap. But in fact, over all this period, the gap has increased, not decreased. So I got interested in the question a while ago of, is there anything that does reduce that education gap? And it turns out that more money spent on the school doesn't help, believe it or not. Smaller classes doesn't help. Integrating the schools racially doesn't help. Not that that's not a bad idea. There's other very good reasons for doing that, but it doesn't reduce the education gap. Um, so the, uh, but what does reduce the education gap? The one thing that reduces the education gap that research has shown repeatedly is improving what's called the school climate. If the school is seen as a friendly environment, 
irrespective of whether you're doing well on tests or not. If you feel like people like you here, the faculty, the staff like you here, the principal knows your name, cares about you, the teacher welcomes you at the door, asks about your family, Mm -hmm. Uh, they care about you as a person, everybody's test scores go up without any more homework. In fact, it can be with less homework. Test scores go up and the test scores go up more for kids from economically impoverished families than for kids from wealthier families and the gap decreases. I think the reason for that is I think a good part of the reason for the education gap is that if you're from an economically poor family, school is a more foreign environment to you, a stranger environment to you than if you're for a more from a more economically well-off family. The mm-hmm. language is different. The ways of speaking is different. The activities are, you know, if you're from a, a highly educated parent's, they talk the same way your teacher does. <laughs> you've, you've been exposed to a lot of the same kind of ways of thinking and so on and so forth. And if you're from an economically poorer family. And so if you feel like this is kind of like my home, I'm comfortable here, you perform better than if you feel like, wow, this is really an unusual place. I'm really a stranger in this place. Then you don't perform so well. So anything that's can be done to make this feel like home for everybody and to feel like I'm not being judged here. Mm -hmm. I'm not being judged based on how I perform on the tests. I'm being, I am being judged for who I am as a person by somebody who knows who I am as a person. (laughs) And so that's, um, that's the change that I think if that can be made in schools, there are recipes for doing it. And everybody's happy. The teachers are happier. The principal is happier. And the kids are happier. And scores go up. And, and, and part of that is making everything a little bit more playful. I kind of make a distinction between play, which I defined the way I sort of defined it before, and playful. You can have, in class, you can have lessons. They're not play because they're still they're initiated by the teacher. And so they, they can be more playful. They can be more fun. They can be more lighthearted. And to the degree that the class is made more playful, that there's like some laughter going on, that the kids are allowed to speak out of turn and they can talk about what they want to talk about, it becomes a more natural and comfortable environment for everybody. And the result, believe it or not, is an increase in test scores as well as an increase in happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Dr. Gray, I, I really appreciate you sharing. I think that there's so much overlap with good physical education and play and changing the school environment, whether it's in the after school or in the in the in school environment from what you shared. And I'm gonna link to your article in the in the show notes so people can read the full full article. I, I think it's really well written. It flows really well um, and um, just really appreciate you uh, you're taking the time to share with us. Well, I am very happy to. Of course, I'm doing everything I can to get the word out about this. Yeah, and and we'll also connect to uh, the Let Grow organization. Um, I'll, I'll put the links into there so people can check that out if they're interested in exploring that further. So uh, thanks for coming on. Okay, thank you again for having me on. 
All right, everybody. Uh, that's all we have for you on this one. Uh, I want to also thank uh, Alba Rodriguez for her work in producing the podcast. And thanks for listening. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.